Listener Production. G'day, it's Rusty here, all set for part two of my podcast with Aussie Isle of Man TT winner Cam Donald. If you've arrived at the start of lap two here, part two, you have missed some absolute gold that you'll really enjoy, even if you're not into bikes. Jump back to the Rusty's Garage Library and hit the starter on part one. From his early years in Warrandyte on the outskirts of Melbourne to racing in places like Macau in Asia and some fabulous insights on riding and conquering one of the most dangerous races in the world. Cam has this way of being able to take you there in his storytelling and we will continue that combo now in part two. We begin with the awe in which the race is held among constituents, people like Mark Webber, for example, who've been there, and the way the organisers have retained a bit of the old school flavour as the bikes and the event business continue to evolve. Yeah, they really get it. I think they get it um, with the history and the way the paddock, you don't need a paddock pass. You know, most of the paddock is grass. Um, you walk around and you can go from the factory teams with the factory mechanics and all their data loggers and technicians and you can literally walk 100 metres down the paddock and there's mum and dad in the old transit with a caravan and an awning, literally, and and they're there for two weeks, week of practice, week of racing. And, you know, and there's the, a laundromat at the toilet block because people do their washing and next to the race, the leather's hanging up and there's, a, you know, towels on the line. It's like a time warp, and that's the beautiful thing about it that everyone appreciates. And and if you're in motorsport, I remember um, Scafey came over and did a, a story. Um, yeah, and and it was great. Oh, it was funny. I was never a fan of Scafey in touring cars when I had my favourites, but I really got along so well with him. And when we did a lap in the car together, you know, he got it. Same reason racing Bathurst, you know. Why would you want to take on that extra danger? But that extra thrill and the challenge for a rider, for a mechanic to get a car, a bike to survive what those street circuits do to is that's such a big element of um, challenge and satisfaction when you do get a result. The busy nature of race weeks over there and you being immersed in it as a, as a rider means you probably park a bit of that bit of that stuff. But when you've been commentating or working on the broadcast, has that, has that hit you then? Yeah, massively. And I always try to get out with the other commentators early in the week before the hard work starts and go to a few of my favourite spots to watch. And, yeah, I, I, I sit there now and I think, how did I do it sometimes, you know? And people are like, oh, do you miss it? And I'm like, I miss the excitement, but I don't miss those sleepless nights. You know, you get you get up to go to the toilet at one o'clock in the morning and then you realise what you're about to do that day and you're just like, bing, you're not going back to sleep, you know? And the more I did it, the harder that got. It's pretty heavy duty, you know, so I love that excitement and I love now I see so much and I've learned a lot too and I wish I knew that watching the other riders because you do get so immersed in your own effort there. You overlook a lot of things and um, you definitely overlook how hard it is for the people that are close to you, that's for sure. You know, I mean, especially back in the day, not a lot of internet too. Dad was, he'd have to go around to a friend's house to sit up to try to listen to TT radio or look at the results. And, you know, and I'd go off the timing screen and he wouldn't, he wouldn't know. Um, I just think I remember once a 600 popped up on the mountain in a race and I went into the little Marshall hut and I said, can I use the phone? And they're like, no, it's a satellite phone. It's for emergency only. And I'm like, okay. And um, 
they walked back out the front of the hut and I just, I couldn't believe it. I dialed the dialing code and I rang dad and he answered. He was around at Tingates in Wonga Park here, sitting up, you know, sinking a bottle of whiskey, I think, trying to keep his net. And I said, don't worry, dad, 600, it's shit itself, I'm fine, blah, blah, blah. Thanks, mate. One of the marshals came in. What are you doing? I was like, see you, dad, hung up. But after that, I'd always, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd know dad's mobile and if I broke down the side of the road, I'd ring my dad or one of my best mates back here. I'd say, can I borrow a phone or send a text? Just to let them know because, yeah, it's hard. It's hard when you um, can't see the track. You don't know where people are. And now doing the commentary job and being involved in other riders, it's really hit home how hard that is when you're on the other other side of it, sitting there and someone goes off the timing screen and you're like, that's a bad section of track, you know, and you're hoping it's a mechanical or... But again, that's part of the excitement and the beauty of it too. When you first did it as that newcomer and had that great result, I think you, you thought... I'm, I'm going to do this just for a few years. You, did you set yourself a target? And, and was it a, a numbers game in your mind? Did you think, you know, I'm, I'm addicted to this, I, I want to conquer it, but I'm acutely aware of, of you know, if you keep coming back, the, the risks are there? Yeah, always knew it was a numbers game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll give it three years and see where I'd end up. Second year, I went back and rode for a Yule Duncan, who was the next top rider. Um, that ran his own team in Northern Ireland with some local transport company, Robinson Concrete and Wilson Craig. They were this conglomerate. And they'd gone and bought the ex-team Honda Britain superbikes and 600 bikes that were ridden at the time by, I think it might have been, it wasn't Jonathan Ray, Carl Harris, really good riders. So top quality machinery. Um, and I went back my first year on a superbike and my second year at the TT. And in the senior... Um, I ended up running second in the senior to John and I actually broke the lap record during the race, which is 128 and a half mile an hour. John broke it by about a second and a half the next lap. But still to do that and come so close my first year on a superbike. And when I look back, I'd honestly say that was my the achievement I'm the most proud proudest of. My second year, how I got away with that too, when I look back at some of the things I was doing on a superbike and I was... What do you mean? You know, I would not hesitate and hitting two wheels into a curb like really it was john that gave me said you know leave yourself a foot mate like unless there's a win on the table leave yourself a foot or two but you know people were saying i was crazy and i was i'd love it i was getting a buzz out of it i mean i was very experienced racer i knew how dangerous it was but probably you know i was 10 foot tall and full of confidence um you know i I get goosebumps (laughs) I used to have a shower in the morning. You shivered then? Yeah, I used to have a shower in the morning, look in the mirror and say to myself, well, today's as good a day as today as any other. Let's get it on. You know, let's go out there. And and I love life and I take life quite seriously. But, man, I was brave back then and confident in my ability and focused. You know, every day of the year, every other race I did was just – more bike time for the TT. Every time I got out of bed to ride 40Ks on the pushy, go cut laps, of the, swim laps of the pool in the winter, everything I did was to win a TT. From after that first time I went there, that was life's focus. And all of a sudden, all those goals to do world super sport, go race circuits, I still wanted to do it, but only coming second to the TT. So my whole focus was just, once I tasted it, um, yeah, that was it. But, and to be honest, that is the focus you need to get a result there. You talked about uh, a highlight there for you. Uh, mate, there are several. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, two wins, 11 podiums. I think you broke the lap record twice. That's mighty. Yeah, it was great. Wish I'd done, you know, 
Could have been, should have been. That's the TT. Feel blessed with my two wins. You know, one of the, the second closest finish in history to my dear mate Bruce Anstey. 0.6 of a second between myself and him. We're both on Hondas, different brands of tyres. Couldn't see each other on the track. You know, four laps of 65 kilometres, 1,000 corners and 0.6 of a second. Crazy. You know, like Crazy. that's... And, you know, led the senior and had the bike break. Led 600 race, had it stopped. Led 600 bike break. But every TT rider's got that, you know. I wish there was more wins, but it wasn't meant to be. Feel blessed I've got those results. A heap of stories and, and, and blessed that I come out the other side, really. We are sitting here surrounded by motorcycles, and we'll get to a few of them in the, in the convo. But what's the one from the TT chapter that you go to sleep and dream of? The one that had the magic lap? Um, and I'm not asking you to play manufacturer favourites here because I know you've done, you've done different things, but the one that kind of still gets the hairs up on the back of your neck that you know there was a special bike, a special day when you rode it. The 2008 Suzuki Superbike. Um, I used to give all my bikes girls' names. Um, was this one? Adelita was the name. <laughs> He's actually a lead singer of Magic Dirt, a really well-known Australian <laughs> band, because she's just a grungy tough rock chick tattoos long hair rips the guitar and that's every bike it would have a personality and she, that was a brute to ride and um she's not a brute she's a beautiful lady amazing musician but she's a rock star and this bike was just an angry rock star to ride really it had a personality um and it was incredible um and what i did and what i achieved on that uh, and then, yeah, I went to Macau that year, left everyone in my dust, and it actually overheated and blew an engine fuse, and I had to roll to the stop. But what I achieved on that bike, and the next year, Suzuki bought out the new bike, the K9 model, and it was a short-stroke motor. I learned a lot about that K8. It was a long stroke, which works very well for the TT, where you're rolling on and off the power. It keeps a lot of stability, keeps a lot of inertia. Um, at the time, we hadn't really worked that out. But the next year, we went back, and I was a multiple TT winner lap record holder, and we went out on this new bike. We couldn't get it to work. And it was um, the um, – this is weird, we were a factory Suzuki team. Hector, the owner, the state, you know, Philip Neal ran Taz Suzuki, but Heck was the old boss that had been around forever, and he goes, get that old bike. It was in the race truck. Get it out. Fuel it up. Get him out on that. And Philip was like, we can't go out on the year-old bike. We're – factory suzuki team he's like he's going to do two he's going to do a lap on it and he's going to get to the bottom of what the problem is with this new bike and when i went to go out this was this um one of the last nights of practice second last night of practice my mechanic said it's got two laps two it's got a full tank if it feels good do two laps and i went out and from a standing start i set a new lap record so and i knew because i had a timer on the dash and i was like right and then the next lap, I went quicker again. So it was the first ever 131-mile-an-hour lap in excess of. So we came in and we're like, well, I said, okay, um, I can ride that bike and win the TT. Um, and you can come up with an excuse to Suzuki <laughs> or we can ride the old bike and I'll be lucky to finish in the top 10 at the time. Don't get me wrong, the next year's bike evolved into something good but at that time yeah so they were still trying to come up with how we we're going to do that and the next night i went out i wasn't going to ride so we had this plan i won't even go out in the last night of practice do everyone's head out go out in the super bike race that day and yeah. and then we weren't going to do it and halfway through the practice session on friday night the mechanic said i'm not blaming the mechanics but they're like right that super stock bike you're going to race on wednesday it's got brand new brake pads and a chain. Why don't you go out and do one lap circuit familiarisation? And I did. And I went out and I didn't because I was just doing an easy lap. And I followed Connor Cummins on the Superbike for half a lap. I was on the stock 1,000. 
and I just he started pulling away and I really consciously thought roll off and I went into a downhill corner and didn't go down enough gears and he went down like two instead of three ran wide on exit and I was like oh shit I'm gonna run wide I'm gonna run wide and there's a green a paddock and I picked it up Keppel Gates the corner and when I rode into the paddock it wasn't until I hit the grass that I realized wow I'm still doing like 100 miles an hour and I hit what felt like a wombat hole, but it had to, some sort of hole in the, in, the, in the brambles and cartwheeled myself into oblivion, dislocated shoulder. And after doing what I did the night before, missed the 2009 TT. So, yeah, I've sort of that story's twisted into a very long tale of the hardest um, lesson I ever learnt there too. But, yeah, things were looking up after 2008 and that bike, which unfortunately the fairing's still in the loft at Suzuki, but the bike got broken up and sold. But, yeah, that was... Um, without doubt were a pretty special package me and that bike motor racing is always a, a constantly evolving thing right but are, are there some things that are unique to the motorcycle that you want when you're at the tt as um as a as a base underneath you awesome question rusty because a lot of people ask that and a lot of people think oh you set the bike up soft and compliant for all the bumpy roads yeah in theory but get a 200 now 230 40 horsepower super bike set it up soft thing's going to tie itself in a knot very similar setup to phillip island you want stability you don't want a bike on its nose you want stability it has to change direction but you're better off to have a bit of stability and fight the bike a bit more through the corners than have it twitchy because there's a lot of really high speed bumps but you've got to set the thing up stiff and especially with a high a high grip level of a slick tyre, um, it's funny now, once again, being the commentator, being the uh, in the outside looking in, I see riders coming in the first night now and they're all like, soften it off, it's trying to shake my teeth out, it's trying to, you know, it's a handful, but where the experienced riders know, they've just got to grit their teeth, wait till a bit of rubber comes up on the track, the grip level rises, they go a bit faster, then the bike starts to work. So really, I learnt quite quickly, you've just got to put up with it for a night or two, and when you go faster, that bike starts to work, you know? But, um, so for the TT, yeah, you want stability and you want everything strong. Like, you know, I remember looking at, you know, HRC, you know, their rear sets, one piece, you know, where now there'll be four pieces where you can adjust this, adjust that. Well, that's just eight more bolts that can fall out mm. you know the things that i've seen broken on bikes around that track it eats them alive so everything needs to be beefed up um yeah and made for endurance probably similar to what they do with stuff around bathurst i guess you know it's because mm. it beats the hell out of the bike you have ridden a special bike around there loris caparossi's rizla suzuki moto gp machine i want to say 2015 i might have the year wrong what was that like Mind-blowing. It was a deal. I was so lucky to get the gig. Bruce had ridden for Suzuki longer. He probably deserved it more, but he never answered his phone. That's pretty much why, because Bruce is notorious. He just doesn't answer the phone. So they were like, and and he didn't turn up to quite a few tests. I remember turning up to Cartagena once. I'm waiting at the airport, ringing everyone. Bruce just didn't show, like for a factory team. But then he turned up at the next race and beat everyone including me that had done the testing so um they offered it to me i was meant to ride it at silverstone we went to silverstone for the photo shoot and it rained so i didn't get to turn a wheel on it until i rode off so the la- the idea was it was loris's bike full spec um they took the carbon brakes and put the steel brakes on for the wet uh, for the uh, because they said yeah they ran steel brakes in in the wet weather and they said they'll build heat a lot quicker um 
And yeah, go out to a parade lap. I remember Paul Denning reminding me this thing's worth about a million quid. I remember, as you were saying it, thinking, <laughs> good luck getting that out of me if something goes wrong. <laughs> but um, Mark Potter, I think it was from Motorcycle News, was on a replica GX1000 and he was going to follow me with the camera. So they said, whatever you do, just ride slow enough that Mark can keep up on the 1000. Enjoy it and just knock yourself out. So, and I remember I said to Loris, how do you get this thing off the line? Like six, eight grand. He's like, no, 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 Cameron, hold it like 14. I think it revved to 16,000 and it was 800cc MotoGP bike, revved to more than that. He said, no, just hold it open and just feed it clutch. It goes off the line really smooth. So I did that and started shifting gears and this thing was just like mind-blowing. How fast it accelerated, how agile it was. So I got to the first road end and uh, I come around Braddon Bridge and I look over my shoulder and of course, Mark, I can't even see old mate in the thousand. <laughs> and I remember looking, I, like I turn, I look ahead, there's just straight road, fans lining a hedge, a lap of the TT course. I look back, I look ahead, I look back and I remember thinking, sorry, I'm going and just <laughs> dropped it another gear and took off and that thing was incredible. I mean, you can YouTube it down Solby Straight. I sometimes do just to have a giggle. As these old blokes landing on the hearing it go past and you hear how long it's at 100% throttle well north of 200 miles an hour and uh, it's funny because these blokes are laughing and hearing going shit I thought it was a parade lap you know <laughs> but I'm just sitting on this bike thinking I'm getting to ride a MotoGP bike around the Isle of Man when is I ever going to get to do that again yeah. um, I'm not waiting for anyone it was just such a quite a few things broke so I was like did you notice some red lights on the dash and I was like oh no I, I did but I thought I'm not stopping but they were like some of the um, yeah the suspension potentiometers had broken off and a few other wow. things had yeah we realised I said you would smash the lap record on this but the bike wouldn't last probably a lap mm. so um, but yeah hopefully one day one of the factories will take a MotoGP bike there because it would be allowed but they'd have to beef the thing up you mentioned the TV before. Are you enjoying that? Did that come easily? It seems like it does because you've got this real, um, you know, you've always had this this affable nature about you, but you clearly like talking about the bikes and what they're going through. And is that the position that you're kind of in from a, a TV perspective? It was a perfect fit, um, well out of my comfort zone, but everything I've done in, you know, to move forward in racing, you need to step out of your comfort zone. And I've learnt life's the same, you know, bite off more than you can chew and keep chewing sort of thing. And, um, and yeah the opportunity arose and i grabbed it with both hands it started yeah doing some stuff with fox asia with MotoGP, and then um probably let probably gave the impression i had a lot more experience than i had so they really threw me in at the deep end and you know being in a studio i was like whoa but that was great grounding too for the tt i mean i love the tt talking about bikes um as Kaz says, you can't shut you up. You've always been good at talking. <laughs> at least now you're getting paid for it. So it, it was a good fit. And plus, you know, I guess it, it went on from doing the journalist job with testing bikes. I always felt like testing a bike when I got that opportunity through Jeremy Bowdler back in the day at um, Two Wheels magazine. I grew up reading magazines and dreaming, never having the money to buy, but dreaming over bikes, I'd read the reviews. That was gospel. And I, so when I got the opportunity to test, I really felt I had an obligation to the reader to tell it exactly how it is. Mm. Highlight the good, the bad. And and coming back to the TT to the telly job was the same. I thought there's so many things people don't know and I just want to share that with them. And that's still, it excites me to this day. And, and I feel really lucky that I've got that opportunity um, to do the tally job. As you know, it's great. You get to get behind the scenes. You know, it's also a lot of work. It's a lot more work 
and probably less money than people think, <laughs> but it's still a dream job and, and it enables me to still be involved in the event, which I love so dearly. So, yeah, it's been good. One of my first bosses said, tell them what you can't see. That was his, that was yeah. his whole philosophy, yep. like Mike Ordson. I know this is a bike-related episode, but I have to ask you guys what you think of this. When you're driving, what's your wave technique when someone lets you through? Do you go the hand on the wheel one finger up, full hand thank you, or just a friendly nod? I would tell you what my wave is but I'm a non-sentient voice written by a producer and then inserted into a podcast. So I don't really wave too much. Or drive for that matter. Hey, we want to talk some classic bikes. Firstly, was it? I mean, you're going back this year. I think that's the. There's talk of that happening, which is which is great. Was it difficult to stop the the outright ultra competitive stuff? I know you're loving the classic side of things, but was it was it difficult to stop that phase? And did you consciously decide that, or did kind of COVID fast forward it, or where, where did you sort of end up with that? Uh, I was going to wind back. Ooh. I wanted to have this is this is pretty deep, but we'll put it out there. I wanted to have kids to stop racing. I thought that will stop me racing because I kept going back to the TT, and then it was getting more serious. And I told you it's a numbers game. I'm thinking if I start a family, I'll have to stop. Kaz didn't really want to start a family, so <laughs> we started a family. Lola arrived, and it was a beautiful thing. And I was just going to sit out to this day. I've never announced my retirement, but I was going to have a year out. And then Mick Grant, ex TT champion. Um, Mick, factory racer, world championship race winner, incredible guy. Uh, he called me and he was involved in Norton. He said, oh, Norton are doing this project. You should come on board. There'll be no pressure to get a result. You can develop a bike and they'll fly the whole family over. And I thought, what an opportunity. So that got me back with the Norton. And I guess I forgot, you know, I, I couldn't ride to, you know, I was there to get a result. And it was some really challenging times at Norton. Um, it was an amazing experience, but it was challenging the bike was a sled you know it really only became good when we were bolting someone else's parts onto it so it wasn't going the direction i'd hoped but it was still amazing and because growing up with pommy bikes british bikes the opportunity to race for norton at the tt Mm. this is the way to end my career did two out of the three year deal and had a lot of things break and just thought i'm going to get hurt here and a privateer honda team wilson craig that had really good bikes and budget he was always saying come back come back and i said to kaz i could ride I don't have to, I take less risk on a Honda, I'll be back on the podium. And I really thought maybe I could go back for a year and get a result. So back on the Honda, racing in Asia, still sharp, feeling, you know, I was going back there to win. Um, I had two 600s break in practice uh, and then Superbike fired a rod in practice. So about 160 mile an hour. Um, Massive, massive. All over the tyre, you know, bike crossed up, brushed the hedge didn't know what had happened just now it went bang you know clutch in on the front brake to the point the back wheels off the ground all i knew i had to wash off speed and i rolled into this beautiful big country house on the left hand side of the road and i rolled into the front gate crossed their manicured lawn lent a bike up against the tree got off looked could see a hole in the back of the crankcase walked around saw a hole out the front back tire covered in oil me covered in oil and, and to be honest yeah i laid on the grass and i just looked at the sky and thought about my family and just went you know i'm done okay that was it that was literally and not that many people know that moment and we withdrew from the tt 
because you know i went out the first race and we had a mechanical issue and i pulled in and i just said that's it you know i'm done it was very hard to walk away um but i think the owner built house and kids i think that was a blessing because i was too busy to stop and think about what i what i was missing out on and then i went back as a commentator and i guess that it all softened but it's bloody hard it's bloody hard to stop when you've been that competitive you know i've just got back now post covid kaz and i back to racing dirt track we did our first race the other week we're out again this sunday and i need it i still need that hit you know that hit of competition and whether you're lining up at the local dirt track or you're racing the tt it's still you're going out to race you know i'm still irritable in the morning and still you know so i need that buzz but yeah that's weaned me off it because it is in a weird way like a drug i guess you know We'll talk about the now in a second, but I want to wrap up the the kind of TT chapter. But just because people have asked about it on social media, to to ask about a couple of the other events over there. So I mean, also I mean, TT is the the thing, but I mean, you did Northwest Two Hundred, you did yeah. Ulster Grand Prix. I mean, Northwest for people that, that don't know it, we're talking Northern Ireland, eight point nine mile triangle, effectively between towns, aren't we? What is that event like? Uh, mind-blowing because it's three of the longest straights in the world well they put chicanes in some of them now but what they don't really they put chicanes to slow it down but we hit 200 miles an hour before the chicane and after the chicane so <laughs> it's like but slipstreaming on a level when you, you i mean you can look at some of the onboards you can slipstream someone they can slipstream you back you can slipstream them again before the braking zone at 200 miles an hour it is there's a lot of strategy there it's incredible and you know you get a hundred thousand people it's just the and there's still I did you know and and the Ulster Grand Prix one of the oldest circuits in the world it was a round of World Grand Prix back in the day as the TT was um, frightening the tracks are so fast because of course the Northwest and the Ulster you do as a group start so 40 superbikes leaving the line rubbing elbows through corners you know at 200 when they're lined by hedges or stone walls it's um you know it makes no sense but when you're doing it the excitement and the purity of it. Mm. Uh, it's beautiful and, and it is like a religion over there and of course through North and Southern Ireland there's all these street races smaller ones that a lot of people haven't heard of like Kells is one of them that's quite famous it's got big jumps you know that is a downhill hump in the road and we went we're going about 60 metres on a superbike are you for real? yeah you can look up the pictures they're pretty yeah so it's because my mechanic at the time says you just hit it flat in fifth. I didn't realise that year I was probably the only one doing that because we were jumping about 15 metres further down the road than anyone else. And that night they found a crack on one of the wells in the swing arm about 100 mil long where the kit swing arm was opening up. So we're like, they didn't tell me that till after the weekend. They put another swing arm in it. But those races, they close a little village, shut off five miles of the road, six miles four miles whatever and they run a race meeting and you get 20,000 people 30,000 people turn up get drunk for two days have these crazy racing and then go home and it's just the excitement and the passion from the people and it still happens to this day and it's it's crazy but it's also a beautiful beautiful thing you know it's what racing would have been like here probably back in the 50s unreal I love the fact that you're still getting a fix that's terrific you mentioned Kaz before she's actually doing some good reviews as well for uh, from a, a you know, motorcycle magazines and things like that, which is which is good. You two race a sidecar together. In the words of the late great Barry Sheen or Jeremy Clarkson, "Are you mad, mate? What <laughs> what prompted you to do that? And how have you enjoyed it?" It's funny. I look back at sidecars, and as a kid, I think they're the guys that turn up to the track in a bus. They've all got beards. They look like they need a shave and a shower, and they you know. 
working on a bike with a mash hammer and a chisel in the back corner of the pits, but that's being probably disrespectful and and, and doing them a disservice. Yeah. There, that, no, there is, but that's what I thought. The sidecar—they're just crazy guys that build these own mad contraptions. It all started when we had a trial because Cass said, "Well, we got to get a sidecar for Lola." So we started looking, and we end up getting a sidecar. That was the first time in a sidecar. Of course, Dad grew up in a sidecar. Um, because that's their family transport. So it was a cool thing. And I started taking a bit more notice, and it was really the TT, watching the sidecars there, how hard they worked, and looking at how hard they got beaten up around the track and the efforts, and that started getting me interested. And then um, I did a come and try day at Broadford on the Clancy's, who are a well-known couple we're probably racing against in the Classics next week. But I got to go at a come and try day. They were like, jump on. Chrissy Clancy said, jump on the side of the sidecar. And I said, well, how about I do a few laps? She goes, you passenger for a few laps and then ride. I thought, this thing's actually a lot of fun. And then racing classic with the Irving Vincent boys, they've got these beautiful mechanical works of art, mm. Irving Vincent powered sidecars. And they said, why don't you do a few laps with Kaz? And we went up and did classic Winton and ended up having a win. And I remember one of the boys telling me, the Isle of Man, the Birchalls, that have been world champions and the very successful current lap record holders at the TT but remember Ben Birchall telling me it's very hard to be fast in a sidecar when you care about your passenger of course his passenger is his younger brother and I can see why and it is hard I mean we're parents out there our kids are in the pits so how responsible are we but you know when we won that little event classic Winton together you know Kaz is on my back hugging me as we come down the cool down lap you know it was only two years ago that's one of the neatest things I've ever done and uh, to share it together and work as a team, uh, it's really special now. And, yeah, here we are. She's competitive too, isn't she? And it's a bit of an intuitive thing, isn't it? I mean, you have to feel each other and what the motorcycle is doing. 100%. She often, Did you hear me screaming? Oh, I can't hear anything over the booming <laughs> 1300cc V-twin Vincent. But um, it's, yeah, you do. You need to know, you need to feel exactly what your partner's doing and what the machine's doing. And, and I guess that's why I'm drawn into it. It's such an uh, incredible partnership between, it's usually as a rider between yourself and the machine, but also with your passenger as well. And, you know, it was only when we went to do the event last year at Winton, Kaz realised how much she actually did. She said, I felt like I wasn't doing as much as I was until she changed directions a little bit early and we're way up on two wheels and airborne off the ripple strip and she landed on my back and, we got away with it, spun out in the dust, but then she was like, wow, my input does that much. And I'm like, yes, it does. What's it like at Bathurst? Because I've seen vision at Bathurst. Well, that led on to us going up to doing some parade laps at Bathurst. And of course, and for all I've done at the TT, I'd never been to Bathurst. I'd always wanted to go with my mates, head up for a road trip, boys with the weekend on the beers, but it was always during race season. So my first time up there was when we went up to do these parade laps. Huge amount of respect for drivers and, and of course, riders because it used to be Rich in history there. such a big motorbike race for Australia. But, yeah, going around there with Kaz on the side, and we also found out that outfit isn't too stable at high speed because they're only ridden it at Winton. So, yeah, that was pretty uh, – yeah, we had a bit of a, a bit of a tank slap in our Comrade Straight. That was um, – she stepped out sideways a bit there, and that was pretty uh, – yeah, that was uh, sobering. But, yeah, what an experience. Yeah, now I'm going, like, the, the experience of actually and seeing the cars around Bathurst, mind blown. But, yeah, so much respect for my forefathers in motorsport that raced both silos and, solos and sidecars around Bathurst because it's one of the most incredible tracks in the world. Funny where life takes you, and there's a little bit of full circle in this. So you talked about classics a moment ago. You are getting to ride at classic meetings some very cool 
bits of gear that are kind of period correct and all sort of, and beautifully, beautifully engineered, aren't you? Yeah, I've always had a respect for the early British and classic bikes and to that to lead on and through TT results to be able to go like places like Goodwood, you know, race at Goodwood. Yeah, we never won. We won races, won two races. We haven't won the event, but some of the racing, you know, like 30-odd bikes, Le Mans start running across the track, and, you know, Goodwood too, everything bike gear, period. Yeah, I still pinch myself now to get that opportunity, and what a lot of people probably realise is how competitive it is too. I mean, you go to Goodwood, remember the last year there, you know, Gardner was riding, Jeremy McWilliams, who's who, all these, you know, all of us there... You know, you think we put our helmets on and say, oh, yeah, we're just going out for a jolly. We all say that until we go out there and it's absolute, you know, life and death. But it's um, a lot, a lot of fun. And I enjoy the classic bike racing now. There's not the pressure, but you get to ride these beautifully handcrafted works of art um, that still are amazing to ride. Yeah, it's pretty special. Vincent Gray Flash. Another bike is just incredible. Another bike I grew up only hearing about. Um, and to ride that and race it and they're just so beautifully handling it's just um yeah it's funny because now all we want is power but power comes with consequences and that's a bike that wants to fight you where those classic bikes just work with you i'm not a believer in regret at all in life you do some great things and and you know you get proud of the road that you walk you enjoy the journey right but is there anything that was left unfinished for you oh yeah (laughs) I mean, I, I, I can't remember who's... I was having a conversation with a mate about the other day, you know. I passed up an opportunity to do a World Superbike wildcard at Who Donington. Who was that? Donington. Donington. That was for Crescent Suzuki. And, of course, I was riding for Relentless Suzuki and they were arch rivals at Suzuki. Um, and Paul Denning was like, I'd done the parade lap in the MotoGP bike, come and do this wildcard. Someone was injured. But my sponsors on the other Suzuki team were like, it's not the right thing to do. And I should have just said I'm doing it, but I did the right thing. Um, I had the opportunity to do a 250 GP wildcard at Phillip Island for the Chinese team I was racing for. Um, and it was, you know, at the time I was told that you can't get a late wildcard entry. Probably a little bit of politics with some people I'd had a run in within the governing body at the time and all that. And, you know, I just accepted it. Where now I look back like I should have done that, a that, that could have happened. That could absolutely happen. A, a Grand Prix start and a World Superbike start. Like I loved Le Mans and World Endurance and all the stuff I've done. But there are a couple of boxes. And... I missed home too much. I could have achieved a lot more on short circuits, but once the TT was done, I just wanted to come back to Australia. I missed home. I missed my mates. I missed my dad and, and my family. And I probably should have gripped my teeth and stayed overseas longer, you know, and gone to like the NEC bike show, which whereas everyone does the sponsorship deals. And But I was just like, get me home. I just want to go fishing and get a, get. Once the TT was done, you couldn't get me out of the UK quick enough, and that probably hurt my short circuit aspirations. But you know, you can always look back at that. Probably opened up more doors back home. Proud dad, girls, are we going? Is there a passion for bike riding and racing among the girls? I think if I've looked at socials right, there is. There is. Well, you know, mum loves bikes. You know, and Kaz was always into bikes long before me. She always vowed she'd never date a racer. They're full of themselves and look what happened. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we did our best. We never a pushy. We're like, if they ask for it, and Lola was so keen on a bike and we got her an offset, little electric dirt bike. Um, and, you know, and now, you know, like the other Sunday we're up the pub, I'm on the sidecar, got Joni in the kids' seat in the sidecar, Lola on the back, and we go up to the pub up the road and you know and we, we 
we have a pot and have a pizza and cruise home and the kids love it. Love we love it and we share it. So you can't fight it. No. Your, da- your dad's Velocet is here in the garage. You talked about the sidecar before. I think that's a Suzuki Katana yeah. that's on it. So I mean, some cool things here. Is there a resto project that you are working on or want to work on? I think over my left shoulder there might be. Yeah, that's a 69 T100C, a 500cc twin Triumph, which is motors rebuilt top to bottom, frames painted. And now with two children, uh, since then it's just gathered dust. So um, I, I've actually bought it down downstairs here in the workshop under the house to start doing that one. I've got a restored 70 Bonnie around the corner, which I've, after two years of chasing an electrical gremlin, found that, tracked it down to a, an ignition switch. So I ride that regularly. I love my classics. Especially, you know, there's a great pub, St Andrew's Hotel up up just up the road from here on a Sunday gets a, a plethora of bikes out the front from all your you know you get your outlaw clubs and your Harleys to modern sports bikes it's such a cross section but I love trundling up on the Velo or the Triumph or the sidecar and having a beer and just talking bikes as we come out of the pandemic there's talk that you'll pack the bags mate and that you will go to the TT this year can you share a bit uh, about what you're doing there and is that going to happen yep flights are booked um, heading back the TT this year have done a, a, a huge step up with their, their media package so I'll be one of the pundits and presenters there which is feel privileged to have that opportunity really excited they've put 66 kilometres of um, fibre optic cable around the circuit they're going to have two choppers in the air instead of one with cameras like yeah they're taking it to the next level because the TT this year will be live so stream live which logistically I can't even imagine I'm just told there's going to we're going to be busier <laughs> so it's going to be a bit more pressure and um as you know yourself to me you know the excitement of uh going racing is one thing but the excitement of live broadcasting there's a bit of pressure there too so um everyone at home will be able to tune in online um and watch it live which is something that's never happened so will you get to do a little bit of riding there and maybe some of the you know stuff that you're talking about to the fans um yeah i usually when i get over there i always end up buying someone's bike and cutting a lap or two on a street bike just to see how it's changed for the riders too and you know it's closed it's public roads you can do that on the street bike and just get an idea of what's changed and and get an idea of what the riders are going through and once again being able to convey that to the to the viewers you know but yeah it's um there's still no speed limit over the mountain we'll just leave it at that (laughs) (laughs) that's a great place to wrap up mate this has been a fabulous discussion congratulations on everything that you've you've done it's a daunting and yet addictive place I, i wish that greater australia knew more about what you've achieved and yet at the same time the people in our world that are that are close to us the constituents know acutely what you've achieved and you should be immensely proud mate well done no thanks mate um thanks for the opportunity it really is a privilege to to come on the the podcast um i enjoy listening to myself there's been so many greats on it but you know the tt and as i I say to anyone just get over there and experience it there have been so many aussies have had success over there over the years um i i guarantee you'll enjoy it and uh most aussies keep going back so it's it's a pretty it's a it is the mecca of motorcycling it's a very special place ripper ripper way to end well done thank you cheers mate Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series editor and producer is Ed Gooden. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If you've got a guest suggestion, get in touch with me via social media. The Garage. It's where a journey begins with a tank full of passion fuel stories. Stories.